0: Global Capital Podcasts.
1: Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. My name is Ralph Sinclair and I'm the Frequent issuers Managing Editor at Global Capital.
2: And I'm John Hay, Corporate Finance and Sustainability Editor
1: and each week we bring you the very best from the world's capital markets. Uh, We're out with a new episode every Friday, so subscribe for free wherever you listen to your podcasts and whatever we talk about in the podcast, you can read about in more depth at globalcapital.com. So be sure to head there once you're done listening to this. Uh, Now this week, we really are a global show. We'll be joined later by our Asia deputy editor who is based in Singapore, that's Manju Dalal, and she's here to talk to us about callable chaos in South Korea. Uh, but John and I will also be discussing a development from COP27 in Egypt that could be a boon for low-income and small countries that raise funding for the capital markets, but we'll start a little nearer to our base in the UK with a tour of Europe's leveraged finance market and the start of what could be a possible reversal of a 20-year trend.
2: Yes, this is about covenants, um, which are the sort of um, part of the terms and conditions on loans, and a uh, covenant is basically a promise by the borrower to uh, keep its financial house in order. And um, you know, typically, uh, for example, to make sure that its debt doesn't grow too big relative to its assets or its cash flow, and also to ensure that it has enough cash flow to cover all its interest payments and then some. So, th- so these uh, covenants, which are sort of ubiquitous on l- loans of some categories, Um, and used to be very much the norm in the leveraged finance world of high-risk loans have have over the years sort of uh, almost disappeared.
1: Yeah, I feel like for years um, we would uh, arrive at our Wednesday story meeting and whoever was covering leveraged finance at the time would, would sort of pitch a similar story, which would be just the further erosion of investor protection is in the leveraged finance market and then mm-hmm. there would be the odd week where you would sort of get an investor fight back and some some covenants yeah. would be added back in but um it really has been a long-term trend uh in in favor of the borrowers hasn't it um yeah well, and yeah. the investors like
2: covenants because basically what they mean
1: is if the
2: company starts to deteriorate in its financial performance and, it, and things are getting worse they they and they get close to a, a breaking one of these covenants or, or actually break it, then that means the, the lenders have the right to call in the company. And, I mean, it, in certain circumstances, they could declare a default and just say, OK, you, you, you've broken your agreement. We want our money back now. In reality, they don't usually exercise that. But what, what it does mean is they can um, ha- give the company a tough talking to and say, um, okay, you know we'll relax the covenant, but you know we want something back you know either you give us more uh assurances of a different kind or perhaps you know raise the interest rate or something like that and so this is why investors value these covenants um and 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 their erosion over the years has really been simply a factor of supply and demand that um the there was so much money chasing uh these leveraged loans that the 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 borrowers could do what they wanted.
1: Yeah, and there's been some fairly sort of um, egregious examples, haven't there, of uh, erosion of governments that do things like stop the owners paying themselves a huge dividend or whatever it might be, or sort of borrowing to pay themselves a dividend and putting that debt on the company and things like that. So it really has sort of moved in a quite extreme way in favour of the uh, the borrowers and their owners. Um, okay, so uh, now... Why are covenants making a comeback now? Um, Is this to do with the rising interest rates or is there another reason?
2: Well, I mean, not directly. Um, This is a a really interesting story by Marta Imarizio, our uh, loans reporter. And and it started from a comment um, made by the head of leverage finance at BNP Paribas this week, who said, you know, you should expect covenants to start making a return, especially when the banks themselves are... The lenders which is the case in sort of parts of leverage finance but this is really a sign of um, you know that balance of supply and demand has tipped, and uh, you know it's been a pretty bad year for leverage finance all capital markets pretty much with a few exceptions have been um, in sort of in uh, like bearish territory you know, the whole world economy is doing bad is sort of heading has inflation and interest rates are going up, risk appetite is down everywhere. And um what that means is the um there've been far fewer deals, and the um rather than that meaning the investors are even more desperate to get them, it, it means the um it's because the investors are playing hard to get, and this means um they at last have a bit of power and so certain people in the leveraged finance market are expecting to see uh, some covenants return.
1: Yeah, I guess because how this works, which is slightly different to other parts of the capital markets, is that the banks involved in these deals finance them first themselves, don't they, and hold them on their balance sheet. And then they uh, sort of refinance that debt by getting other investors in the market to come and come and take it from them. Um, I suppose, I wonder if it's... Um, I guess what's happened this year, I, you know, we should say is that um, the markets have been so bad that the banks have been left holding a lot of this debt that they would otherwise mm. have uh, syndicated away. Um, and I wonder if this is a, an effort to sort of give them more easily saleable products um, in future leveraged financial deals, or, or possibly just to protect themselves in case they're stuck with the, uh, stuck with the position for longer.
2: Yeah, I think it's both because um, even though it's been a stressful year in the capital markets, the economy is actually still quite good uh, in most of the developed world. Um, and uh, But everybody feels it's going to get worse. And that, uh, you know, recession is, we might just avoid recession, but probably most people now think it's unlikely. So there will be recession. This means um, the, the financial health of a lot of these highly indebted companies in the leveraged finance market is going to be worse. And, you know, uh that means credit spreads will widen further, the, the debt will be uh you know less valuable. So that's going to mean first of all, it's harder for banks to sell it into the market. So if they can make it more attractive by putting covenants on it and you know, entice the investors that way, that, that could be a cunning strategy. Um and and but but also the banks are well aware that they you know to the extent that they end up owning this paper, they're heading into a recession with it. And they, they don't particularly want um, to be holding a lot of like uncovenanted debt when uh, things get tough.
1: Well, especially when there's no sign of um, interest rates topping out or falling, because mm. that debt's well, going to be harder to service.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it will be. Um, I mean, people people do expect interest rates to keep rising. I will say though, though that we did ha- we did have a a bit of encouraging news from the US, didn't we this week, Ralph?
1: Uh, yeah, that's right, John. Um, there was US CPI data out this week, which is a uh, US inflation, and it st- has started to come down a bit, which is exactly what people have been hoping would be achieved by the various interest rates uh, interest rate increases by the federal reserve it's it's done that um it's had that effect that little classic effect of um making uh it appear as if people in markets now think that interest rates can only go back down and um there was a huge rally in um riskier assets this week uh in response to that lower lower number now uh how that plays out yeah, the- we don't know
2: yeah, the US stock market was up five and a half percent yesterday, which is absolutely terrific. Um, but uh, yeah, as you say, um, we don't know, and um, people may be feeling sour again in a few days.
1: Yeah, it's it's been it's been that way this year, hasn't it? People um, mm. sort of expect the worst and really expect the worst, but then the but the slightest whiff of an indication that things are headed the other way, and it's like watching the the great migration of the wildebeest across the uh, savannah. But um, yeah, and, so... I,
2: mean, I think going back to the leveraged loans, though, it's worth worth emphasising that uh, you know the story was interesting partly because not everybody agrees, and you know some of the other people Marta spoke to had you know did uh had sort of sensed that that uh there could be a revival of covenants but others uh you know thought um th- disagreed you know they they said they've seen no sign of it so far all virtually all the deals are still covenant light as they're called and um you know they thought you know even if the covenants were added to the odd deal uh to to make it easier to sell that it, it probably wouldn't be a trend so um i think um You know, it's very much a a developing situation and would be interesting to see next year what what happens.
1: That is interesting. I mean, I think what we often find when we talk to our contacts about something new, about something very new, and that's something that's quite contrary to um, a sort of a secular trend, is that a few people will say, oh, no, I don't see it happening or nothing's going to change that much or, Whatever it might be now, what were their reasons, uh, or do we know what their reasons were for thinking uh, this wouldn't be sort of the the covenant comeback? Um, is it simply that there's still too many buyers of this debt out there, or do they, or did you, or do we get the impression they just sort of have their heads in the sand and they're not really sort of thinking forward enough?
2: No, I th- I think um, I don't think they have their heads in the sand. I think they they haven't seen any evidence of it yet in the market. They they have experienced uh, ten and you know arguably even more years of of a sort of relentless uh, move in in borrower's favor and you know even if the funds out there in the in the leverage fund leverage loan market are depressed at the moment and not not you know wanting to lay out cash on a lot of deals they that money's still there and the you know I think they they feel that the balance of power in the market will take a long time to change really drastically. So, um, you know, I, I think their caution about the trend is not 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 surprising. Really.
1: Yeah. OK, well, we'll see um, now, John, let's let's stick with the uh, fascinating world of bond documentation. Um, You've written this week about uh, an announcement at the COP27 conference in Egypt, and that is about making low income countries and sort of small island nations that come to the capital markets uh, more resilient in the face of climate change. Can you can you outline for us what's happened?
2: Yeah, this is really interesting. Um, And it's a sort of one of these things that you often hear people talk about. They come up with clever ideas for how the bond market could be improved or how, you know, some other aspect of finance markets could be improved um, and, and very often you know it, it sounds like pie in the sky or like unrealistic because um, you know um, th- th- markets are the product of you know a lot of uh, clever brains working and trying to devise the best structures already so there's not there's not a whole lot of room for kind of suddenly coming up with a clever uh new widget that that, that improves things But I I really think in this case, it it, it, it could be an example of that. And what's what's being proposed is that um, the, the weaker emerging market countries, particularly small countries, especially small islands, and also those that are, you know, particularly vulnerable to climatic risk through drought or floods or whatever, should, when they issue new bonds, be sort of attached to them a clause that says if we get hit by a a natural disaster during the life of the bond we will automatically have a one or two years uh, gap of not having to pay interest and so we'll get a sort of built-in kind of um bit of debt relief and and you know the interest will be paid later but um it, it will just sort of give us time to get through the crisis
1: Okay, so, of course, the devil is always in the detail with these things. Um, How does one define a natural disaster?
2: Yeah, well, that's a that's a very important point. And the um, the proposal that's been put out, which is it's got a a very impressive list of backers behind it. It was it was actually the UK government as president of the G7 that's sort of set up this working group last year. And but it's got the IMF involved, the World Bank Group. Um, and, and a whole bunch of uh, private sector financial firms have contributed. Um, the International Capital Market Association, which is the trade body for the bond uh, market in in this part of the world, has has backed it. and so it's got it's got strong backing. and what what they've done is take the examples that were carved out by two Caribbean countries, which is Grenada and then Barbados. And um, what these countries have have done, um, in fact, in cases when they had to renegotiate and restructure their debt after defaulting is to put in clauses where they would get a payment break if a disaster happened that was objectively um, uh, determined. So it's not to do with the country suffering any specific dollar amount of loss or, or, or anything like that. It is a, a, a kind of physical measurement of the event by a an external third party um in this case it's something called the caribbean catastrophe risk insurance facility which is already existing um kind of insurance platform for caribbean countries
1: okay that's that's interesting um these these sort of objective um scoring of disasters uh, already happens in the catastrophe bond market and the yeah. the World Bank has issued bonds like that precisely to protect certain countries from um, or, or I guess to provide funding in the case of uh, being hit by natural disasters. Um, but they're two, we're talking about two different but probably complementary types of security here aren't we really?
2: Yeah they are quite different and although the cat bond uh, concept which is now about 25 years old is it, sort of you know works well and and is um, you know viable it, it's It's still a small market, and th- you know the investors in it need to be really quite sophisticated because they are taking uh, major risk. I- essentially, in a catastrophe bond, if if the defined event occurs, the investor will lose part or all of the principal. and what that means you know so it'll be a total loss and so because of that they naturally demand pretty high interest rate now on the on the plus side the the recipient of the insurance whether it's an insurance company or a country or whoever it is gets a, a large lump sum so that's 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 the benefit now what's being proposed here is different it's we're talking about normal bonds just ordinary bond investors who are just buying bonds to finance the country. Um, and, and the risk to the investors is far, far smaller because all that's being proposed is essentially that they will um, have a one or two year break in their interest. So not not even a, a loss of principle. Now, of course, that means the benefit to the country is smaller. They, they just, you know, it might not be that many millions of dollars that, that that they save on on paying interest, but um, it, it could nevertheless be very handy and will come at a time um, when when the country's you know on its knees dealing with this disaster.
1: Going back to Barbados, just just quickly, the disasters were specified in in some detail. Do we get the sense that that will be the case with all of these bonds, that each bond will have specific sort of bespoke disaster clauses referring to particular types of events? Or will there be a sort of general general catch-all clause for all types of disaster?
2: Yeah, no, it has to be very specific because otherwise um, you're just going to get disputes and suggestions that, you know, people not trusting each other essentially. So that's the whole virtue of using these parametric triggers, which means you know for example, if it's an earthquake you know the the magnitude on the Richter scale and the location of the epicenter and how far away that is from the country these sort of um you know very objective um criteria will be used and and the point of it is um you know that should that should avoid disputes, but it also means that the interest holiday can can begin straight away, you know. We don't want um, if there has to be five months of, uh, you know, umming and eyeing before anyone can determine whether an event has occurred. Then that's not really helping the country.
1: So how how widely could this spread?
2: Well, um, that's the big question. I mean, the, the people who've put together this um, proposal are very. Hopeful that it will become widely adopted and could even become the norm in the bonds of small, you know, and the more climate vulnerable um, emerging markets. Um, that you know, there are precedents for that, and an interesting one is uh, collective action clauses, which are um, a, a, a type of uh, clause you put in the bond document, which means that if the country gets into difficulty, the bondholders can agree by a majority to, uh, on restructuring terms. And that prevents um, a, a small clique of, of investors who own, you know, just a small amount of the bonds from delaying everything and sort of ruining the country for years. Um, and um, and so this, this is um, something that benefits ultimately both the borrower and the investor. And, you know, so they've become, they're now ubiquitous. And and the um, the, the pro- pro- proponents of the climate resilient debt clauses, as they're called, or CRDCs, think it's the same with them because and the really crucial point is the investors are exposed to this uh, disaster risk anyway. You know, they they if you lend money to to a country and that gets hit by a hurricane, you, you as a bond investor, you're on the hook. So. If the country uh, is going to get into payment difficulties and its economy be badly weakened, um, it's better to have at least part of that process be handled in the kind of orderly, preordained, legally contracted way that that gives the country a bit of breathing space, rather than it all having to be done through a sort of chaotic and very messy and painful process of, of default.
1: Well, it'll be interesting to see which issuers add these clauses to their bonds uh, as, as we move forward. Um, but from natural disasters in the Caribbean to entirely man-made chaos in uh, Korea, where uh, we, speak, we spoke to our Asia deputy editor, Manju Dalal, about an insurance company that decided to call a bond and then not call it and then did call it. Hello Manju and welcome back to the Global Capital Podcast.
0: Hello, Ralph.
1: Um, Now, what happened in South Korea this week? It looked like there was a bit of a mess with an insurance company.
0: Yes, it actually, the story started unfolding last week when one of the Korean life insurers, Yoguk Life Insurance, they announced on 1st of November that they will not be calling their perpetual bonds. And uh, this was happening after a few days uh, they, after sending, they sent a notice to the uh, bond investors that they indeed have plans to redeem these perpetual bonds. And guess what? Um, within a week of announcing that they are not redeeming the, redeeming the bonds on 1st November, they took a U-turn, totally U-turn and said, hey, look, now we have reversed the decision and we are all here. To call the bonds, and they did that on 9th of November.
1: Right, that's a pretty um, hectic uh, change of direction. But let's let's start with um, a bit of bit of background to this. So, um, why does Euclid Life have perpetual bonds in the first place? And uh, can you also explain for us what what you mean by uh, a call a call option within the bond?
0: Absolutely. Banks and financial institutions have. Um, requirement to keep a regulatory capital as a buffer and this more so got more stringent after the global financial crisis when uh, globally the um, regulators realized that the financial institutions and life insurance, these companies are very important um, for the financial markets of the world and they need to have a capital buffer. Um, And there are various ways you can have a capital uh, uh, buffer in your structure of a company and additional tier 1s or tier 2 bonds are such kind of instruments uh, which are like sort of, sort of quasi-debt and uh, quasi-equity um, and the main feature of that that these are loss-absorbing capital um, so they in de facto, uh, de facto they are sort of perpetual in nature because you need a, a say equity forever right but these instruments have so-called every few years uh, option at the, ha- at the hands of the um, company to call or redeem these bonds. And that's what happened in this case of the life insurer where they had uh, option after five years to call the bonds and which fell on 9th of November.
2: And the point of the call option, isn't it, is to really to reassure the investor and make the bond actually behave like a normal bond with a maturity of say five years um, even though technically it's perpetual so so the bonds have these sort of uh, dual nature don't they have re- legally they're perpetual but they can everybody expects them to be called after say five years now what are what are the reasons why um investors feel feel so kind of deeply about this issue so-
0: John, you actually uh, addressed the most key issue, which (laughs) was um, uh, the um, question in mind for each investor this week. So what happens is when these perpetual bonds, you know, like um, not only financial institutions, but corporates, anybody can issue these never-ending bonds or the bonds with no maturity. But having the call options means that you... you sort of know that at that point when the call option or the option by the company to exercise or redeem these bonds come, these will be matured. Um, so what ha- is happening um, with this structure is most of the investors have started pricing these bonds, even, even when these were first initially issued um, as price to call. So instead of price to maturity and, you know, like, Understanding that the basic nature of these bonds is they actually can you know fall into perpetuity if the issuer decides not to call these bonds, but every investor on earth was thinking, oh, you know what, this will be called definitely at the first call date or whenever the next call dates come up. So this this was a huge huge mismatch which actually became very very prominent with this life insurer saying, OK, hang on. Um, I'm not going to call the bonds. And this was so much of a shock to the whole investor universe that the entire Asian perp universe fell 20, 30 points. And that was like huge, a, a very, very huge wake up call.
2: So, so all the perpetual bonds issued by other Korean companies uh, fell in value.
0: Not only the perpetual bonds, but also the senior bonds, um, because all of a sudden, the way the whole drama unfolded, like first you say, you will call the bonds and then you, in a, within a week you change your mind, um, was one bit which actually led to investors thinking, hey, is there something wrong with the Korean institutions? So the, even the senior bonds fell massively and there was another thing which was happening in korea was there uh, a state owned developer uh, or rather we can say a state backed developer had missed a bond um, coupon payment on asset backed security a local one and that was sort of already freezing the market and so the timing for the korean issuer to you know to really um, change its mind so quickly made everyone very nervous so it was a very very like a you can we can call it a knee-jerk reaction, but it was a very serious one.
2: And is the Korean yeah. market usually so volatile?
0: Well, of late, they have been going through their pains, uh, uh, but uh, not so much. It's uh, Korea Korean issuers are considered one of the best uh, investment-grade rated issuers, and uh, not so much. Um, Of late, at least um, in recent times, not so much um, uh, susceptible to, um, say, defaults or uh, with any red flags.
1: But why are investors so jumpy about Korea uh, if it's really only one life insurance company um, sort of changing its mind? Are there more sort of systemic concerns around uh, Korean credit?
0: Well, that's a good question, Ralph, because that's what we thought when we saw, um, you know, the non-call decision, uh, you know, resulting in such a massive sell-down in the Asian financial perps. And that was the first question coming to mind. And when we checked, we didn't get any serious um, feedback that there was indeed a systematic risk. And from how the regulators have managed it, uh, they did Pressure, put a lot of pressure on the um, you know the parent of the life insurer and other commercial banks to ensure that the life insurer got the money to replace the uh, the perpetual bonds uh, it shows that they you know the a systemic risk will definitely can be avoided there is nothing not too much to worry about
1: I oh, should get into the nuts and bolts um, of this sort of refinancing a bit um because i think we need to understand why investors expect these deals to be called uh, after say 5 years and and that's to do with the uh, what happens to the coupon after the call date isn't it
0: yeah so what has what happens with the perpetuals that there is no standard format so there is typically um, a lot of various ways you can structure a perpetual bond say for instance you can have multiple call options or uh, during the life of the bond or you can have a fixed to life bond where there are, you know there is no step up no nothing um but just to ensure sometimes that um, to you know give a comfort to investors that the perp perpetual bond will be redeemed at the first call date or the second call date there is a step up in the coupon embedded so, uh, which is typically 200 300 points higher which means that if the issuer of the bond does not call the bonds or redeem the bonds at the call date then they end up paying a higher coupon to the investors and which is fair because you get compensated for you know holding the bonds so uh, but in this case there was indeed um, a step up uh, for the Korean life insurer but the tricky part was the also the you know the market backdrop because now the markets are so so bad the Korean issuer wanted to actually issue um, you know a replacement new bonds but they found that hey the the new bonds will actually will cost me more than my decision not to call the bonds and yet pay a higher coupon so in a way uh, you know when they said okay we are not going to call the bonds it was sort of a very sensible decision because not calling the bonds and you know, uh, uh, going with a cheaper cost of capital is good because you, you, that, that capital is somewhere counting to your whole bottom line. Um, yeah
1: mm. I mean, that's been a global phenomenon this year, hasn't it? Uh, rising rates have suddenly meant that the step-up Coupons after a call date that any issuer will pay, any financial institution will pay to hold this regulatory capital. Uh, a lot of them have found that the refinancing costs, if they do call the debt, are higher. Um, but it's interesting to me that we've um, this. This has always been uh, something of a sort of controversial topic, uh, going going back uh, decades to even small callable medium term notes uh which had very sort of short call dates and then a longer sort of final maturity but they were always structured in a way that meant you expected the deal to be called and it used to be a sort of huge reputational concern especially in sort of european markets i would say if a european issuer did not call a deal as expected um it would uh have investors frothing at the mouth um that something was wrong and that they wouldn't show up for the next deal because they've been treated terribly and all the rest of it um but i think we've seen this year uh, a few examples where issuers have not called debt and investors have had to lump it so i guess was the reaction with the Cook life trade um so extreme simply because the issuer flip-flopped around so much and in such a short space of time and told told investors one thing and then did another so quickly
0: absolutely uh, i think the flip-flop uh, coming at the time when the market uh, conditions are very challenging and then you already had a sort of an onshore bond default. So there were a lot of background and context to that. Um, and you rightly pointed out uh, that maybe in Europe and US, you know, the perpetual bond issuers have taken the call not to call the bonds. And probably the investors have moved on from there and accepted the reality that, look, if you call the bonds at the wrong time, maybe it is an uneconomical call decision. Uh, but, In Asia, the investors sort of are uh, maybe divided. Uh, They probably have not uh, priced the bonds (laughs) beyond the call option. So that could be reason um, that, you know, the reputation risk still becomes a huge uh, sort of a hangover. And, and, And probably this was also the reason why we saw a huge sell down in the perpetuals across the board this time.
1: How do you think this will change uh, the market in Asia? Do you think this um, sets a precedent for, at least for other issuers now, to feel that they can um, maintain their existing deals rather than call them? Or do you think it's made them more fearful that they will have to call them and meet investor expectations regardless of their refinancing costs?
0: So I feel... uh... There could be two ways things can go around. Uh, One is a very peculiar case of financial institutional backed burps. So financial institutions, as we were saying earlier, that they issue this perpetual securities because these are sort of part of their bank capital, you know, the buffer the regulators want. If something goes wrong, they can fall back on these securities, you know, and convert them into equity and the bond investors don't get anything, but they're part of the equity. So this is one universe of the perpetual bonds, and there is the other universe where, you know, it is corporates issue that. So we are increasingly seeing that there are very bold decisions being taken by the corporate perpetual bond issues in Asia to say, hey, we are, you know, it, it's not making sense in these markets to exercise the call option, so we were not calling um, there were two issuers in Singapore um, last week, which uh, sorry this week in fact, which made this decision, and their bonds were quite stable. <laughs> so, so looks like mm. it, it was accepted, you know, by the investors. But in the case of the financial institutions, where these perpetual securities took uh, uh, the, the drop in the perpetual securities took a uh, severe beating. Um, One reason probably investors could be looking at could be how capitalized the banks are. So they may be like going through if you are not well capitalized and what if you don't call the PERP and don't because if you when you call the PERP what happens to your capital ratio it goes down right you have so you have to either issue a new capital uh, or you had to replenish that, right? If you don't do that, it's, it's a, you will be in breach of the regulatory requirement. So that is what was happening with this korean in Life Insurer, that they had a solvency ratio of 158 um, percent, and the regulatory requirement was 150, which means that it was, they were very neck-to-neck. If they would have called the bonds without a backup of replacing the fund, they would have fallen below the regulatory capital, which would have been more damaging. So, uh, so there are few finan- a few a um, few Korean financial institutions, including Hanwha Life, maybe KDB Life, we which have solvency ratios which are set to be a little bit not in a very comfort comfortable zone. So, it's logical to assume that these they will, you know, will take the decision to call the bonds, but probably also you know uh, replace them with something. Uh, but otherwise it becomes very tricky uh, or you can assume that if they don't find a replacement, they they will definitely take a decision not to redeem these bonds.
2: But it is all about the expectations in the market, isn't it? Because the the cases in Singapore clearly show that, um, well, first of all, in that market, Singapore dollar uh, real estate bonds, weren't they? The, the investors are quite comfortable with the idea that the the company can use it as a sort of in a way an option on interest rates and that that if um if interest rates are, and the market are unfavorable they can just keep the bond there and and I think that's quite rational because from the investor's point of view it's not a default they they still get paid uh, money for, for for the bonds and and the investors are in the in the business of making money by owning bonds um so i think i think the um with <clears throat> the this whole set of expectations around the korean uh, and probably other financial institution bonds is very different isn't it and 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 it's really unclear whether um financial institutions are supposed to treat these instruments uh as ones they can use to make kind of wise interest rate decisions and or whether the, 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 the non-call is really only for situations of distress and um, I guess it's that unclarity that that led the market to freak out. Partly I suppose they expected um, oh suddenly this Korean company uh, three days after saying it was going to call them is not, there, there must be some terrible problem.
0: That could be one and there is another aspect which could be looked at when we look at perpetual bonds, like like in the case of Singapore, like who are actually holding these bonds? So when bond investors hold them, uh, I say institutional investors, they are quite impacted by the mark-to-market losses, you know, which are measured on the bond price. And in this kind of rate environment, the perpetuals, whether interest rates are rising, the perpetual bond, the bond prices of these perpetuals have been a worse hit <laughs> than the normal bonds, so obviously those were not looking good on their books. Uh, in Singapore, as you would know, um, the private banks or uh, the, in, in effect, the high net worth individuals they end up holding, um, you know, most of the securities, and they probably not, won't be too much uh, worried about the mark to market losses. So, so, so that could be you know, can be attributed to the muted uh, sort of response to the two companies who took this decision this week that they're not calling the bonds. Um, then um, there is another thing which also some investors we spoke to were looking at, they said, look, I, hang on, if you if you don't call the bond on the first call date and in this market, which logically makes sense, right? Um, so, but it is not the end of the world because most of the bonds, have another call option after six months. So you can make that decision later on when the markets improve. But that then the it's up to the investors also to understand and also for issuers to, you know, communicate very properly that like what's going on and, you know, be more communic you know, have more transparent communication, have calls around it. Which probably your Google Life could have done that more properly, because because when they sent the first notice, they didn't announce that on the exchange. So there was a lot of little bit chaos uh, in the way they handled the whole situation. It clearly.
1: Yeah, I mean, that seems to be the strange part, doesn't it? There's just a lack of orderly communication. It can't possibly be the case that or you would hope it wasn't the case that they had made uh, an assessment of their financial health, one day and then completely changed their minds about it three days later so this sort of feels like um just some bad admin but you know it lays bare how how important it is to get the basics of those things right
2: that might have been bad admin but the second change of heart having decided it was better not to call it and then faced with the extreme market reaction spreading across the whole continent that that clearly was uh it, it, a decision in the face of changing facts, wasn't it? And they—they they basically were scared by by the bushfire they'd set
0: off. Absolutely, and they, they exactly mentioned that in their last announcement. The anxiety they caused to the market and the chaos they created—that—that that one decision, but uh, it sort of had a happy ending because because you know the of the extreme reaction, the regulators they sprung into action they forced the parent to put in equity they forced the commercial banks to give funding to the life insurer and you know uh, uh, so that they can actually have the funds to redeem the bonds so it's sort of was a good decision and and can you imagine these bonds they fell to nearly what 60 70 levels after this flip flop and they were back to par <laughs> just so, so there was a huge volatility and somebody's definitely would have even made money out of that
1: Well, the perils of embedded options in bonds laid bare for all to see. Uh, thank you to Manju for joining us uh, to record this episode. Thank you for joining me too, as always. And as ever, thank you to Gerald Hayes, our producer, for stitching this all together. We'll be back with more from the capital markets next week. So thank you very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>